She wasn't blind. She could see the way he looked at her. She walked a path strung with razor wire to avoid pushing him away, while also avoiding giving him the wrong idea about where her heart lay. They'd grieved Haytham together on those long nights after they lost him, and she'd always felt a unique kind of gratitude toward Elias for sharing that. But in his own grief, he'd mistaken that wounded, drowning intimacy for another sort, and she'd necessarily had to put up walls between them after that. What is up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode where we last left off. Haytham and Lee's planned ambush gets more complicated when Elias's carriage first stops to pick up Amatha. As always, I will have a link to the full playlist down in the episode description, as well as a couple of short recap videos just to give you a sense of the story so far. All right, that's enough from me. I will catch you at the end of the episode. I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. You can't give the bastards any quarter, the lordling was saying, one cheek packed with brown barley bread, a dribble of gravy oozing down the cleft in his chin. You have to treat them like weeds. If the governor was more zealous about taking the heads off of cut purses, they'd never grow into rapers and cutthroats. He washed it down with a swig of wine and dabbed his chin with the edge of his burlap placemat. The fiddler blinked. Her hands were folded neatly in front of her. Well, I don't know about any of that, but it's true, he insisted, gesturing with the cup before setting it back on the table with a thud. The Sirens pride themselves on mercy, but these are savages. They read mercy as weakness. He leaned back in his ancient wooden chair, which creaked throatily in protest, and motioned across the table to her. Why are we paying the keepers at all if our women still have to worry about being attacked in their own beds? By his fourth cup, Elias's voice had risen from a velvet murmur to a blustery boom, and had they been in the taproom of the nave and not the small private room at the back, she'd have urged him to keep it down. As she peered around the weathered wooden walls, one of which was sporting a growing water stain, Am supposed that it wasn't a meeting room at all, but rather some kind of office. But a crown is a crown, and after Elias palmed it to the serving maid, she'd have moved heaven and earth to accommodate his lordship's request for privacy. It had taken a few days for word of what had happened at the Eidolon to wind its way up to the Grey Keep, but once it had, his note had arrived at the inn on the same day on its crisp cream parchment, sealed with the crest of his house. His note had been alternately apologetic and vengeful, offering his condolences and promising brutal recriminations against the man who'd attacked her. When he asked her to meet, she'd been flattered, and sent back the courier with a brief message to set the date. He cut quite the dashing figure, with his jerkin open midway down his chest and sleeves rolled up past the elbows to expose his well-muscled arms. She hadn't seen him in nearly a year, but it seemed like every time their paths crossed, Lord Whiterose aged five. His long hair was streaked with silver, in a stately sort of way, and his face was sharp and angular like a marble statue. His eyes were underscored with sleepless circles. The price of glory." There'd been a time when they were inseparable, but gradually over the long years they'd drifted apart as both their stars began to rise, and all the more after Elias saved the governor's life. She still had a soft spot for him, probably she always would, but these days most of their correspondence was via letters, although he did still visit occasionally to hear her play the Eidolon, and she was always hearing rumors about his exploits on campaign or the latest eligible match that the governor was arranging for him. 
After I heard what happened, I called the captain of the keepers to my office and tore him a new one, he told her. Told him I wanted bows and badges from all the cloaks who'd been on that patrol, or he could give me his. He sounded more than a little proud of himself for the idea. You didn't have to do that, Amatha objected. The keepers who showed up were courteous and professional. And they'd seemed more than a little worried that what had happened had occurred right under their noses. Elias scowled. We're not paying them to be courteous. We're paying them to be ruthless. One of his hands balled into a fist. But two years of training and they can't catch a man running on broken legs. I don't think that's fair. It all happened so fast that... Man, he made it down an alley and was in the wind before anyone really knew what had happened, and the keepers who came seemed confident that they'd find him. In the meantime, Berta and Finch were paying a king's ransom for a couple of burly sellswords to keep order at the Eidolon. They'd committed to that even before they reached out to Amatha, pleading her to come back to the inn. She still wasn't sleeping there, but she owed the tap mistress a lot, and after a few days, she'd allowed herself to be talked back into playing her usual obligation— Plus, she needed the money. Elias flicked his hand dismissively and knocked back the dregs of his wine as the door creaked open behind him and the serving maid shuffled in to refill their cups. She was pretty, Am noticed, with a round, ruddy face and her hair tied back above bare shoulders. She'd been especially attentive to their table ever since they arrived. Normally, Am would have thought that she was angling for a tip, and perhaps she was, but she noticed the way the girl stared at Elias as she poured dark wine from the clay pitcher into his cup. White Rose ignored her. Am wasn't sure he'd looked at the girl once since he'd palmed her the crown at the beginning of the night. That's another thing, he murmured, his head tipped down, gazing at Amatha under the heavy shelf of his brow. How'd he go out the window? Is there something you're not telling me? Her pulse quickened. His voice sounded faintly accusatory, and his eyes narrowed just a fraction before he broke into a wide grin. You've become a wrestler in your free time. She realized she'd stopped breathing, and she busied herself taking a draft of water from her tankard as the barmaid topped off the wine in her cup. It gave her a spare moment to think. She debated telling him about Haytham, but on a half-moment's reflection, she decided against it. Blackbird had been adamant that no one should know about him being back at the edge. When she pressed him about the adverts that had plastered his name all over the city, he promised her that he wasn't fighting, and that he'd explain it all when the time came. She was less than confident about the truthfulness of either claim. If Haytham wanted to keep secrets, that was fine. She'd keep her own. She hadn't told him about getting drinks with Elias. It wasn't any of his business how she spent her evenings. Their relationship, if you could call it that, was entirely different to the one she'd poured so much of her heart into a seven year ago. They were both different people now, strangers almost, and even if she wanted to believe the soft things he murmured as they lay twined together after love, she knew she couldn't trust him for a second to safeguard her heart. Things died without their hearts. She'd learned that the hard way. When she put her tankard back down, the lordling was still staring at her. Just lucky, I guess, she shrugged. He stared. She could feel him trying to read on her face what she'd left out of the telling. She felt color rise to her cheeks, and she stared into the small fire crackling in the soot-blackened hearth as the serving maid prodded it with a poker and added another log. I don't really want to go over it again. Neither spoke again until the girl had left. Am caught her glancing back over her shoulder at White Rose twice before she disappeared into the taproom. She raised her eyebrows. She likes you. 
Elias rolled his eyes and gave her a dry look that said, I've had my fill of barmaids. Still no Mrs. White Rose, she teased. At this rate, there won't be a lady left in Cliffside you haven't spurned. He made an affronted sound in the back of his throat. People talk. Let them talk. I don't intend to marry myself off to any donkey with a pedigree. He ran his finger around the rim of his glass as he thought about it. A rich donkey, maybe, he reflected after a moment. He bobbed his head to her. And you? Don't tell me there isn't an army of suitors angling for the hand of Lady Moonrise. Moonrise, maybe. Not Am. The role she played when she stood up on the little stage at the Eidolon, or at any of the other tea houses and tap rooms they invited her to play at, was just that. A character. Am had copper in her bones. She was proud of where she came from. She peered around the dingy office at the back of the nave. The girl had left the door ajar, and a coarse rumble of conversation between working men filled the gap. Most of them wouldn't be caught dead in a place like this, she murmured, present company excluded. He blinked at her, comparing him to her highborn suitors, and Amatha quickly added, I'd gladly trade a few offers of marriage for letters of patronage, but why don't you come up to the keep? I could introduce you to the right people. You'd have a patron before the day is out. She smiled indulgently. This wasn't the first time he'd offered to get her a patron. She'd considered it, especially on those days when her search was frustrated by noble prigs angling for something else, but she'd never taken him up on the offer. Truth was, she didn't want to owe Elias anything. She wasn't blind. She could see the way he looked at her. After several drinks, he had all the subtlety of a spice-blind ox. She walked a path strung with razor wire to avoid pushing him away, while also avoiding giving him the wrong idea about where her heart lay. There'd been a brief time before Haytham when he'd held her attention. Elias was always the talker, while Blackbird had been content to sit in his quiet corner scowling into his glass. But that fancy had been scorched early, and these days she loved him like a brother. They'd grieved Haytham together on those long nights after they lost him, and she'd always felt a unique kind of gratitude toward Elias for sharing that. But in his own grief, he'd mistaken that wounded, drowning intimacy for another sort, and she'd necessarily had to put up walls between them after that. She looked up from her dark reflection in her wine glass. Are you sure you're not just trying to show off your fancy castle? White Rose grinned. It's big, too. Did I mention how big it is? She laughed and called him an ass. Elias motioned to the dingy little room. I haven't forgotten who I used to be. Who we all were. Am's smile flickered at the allusion to the brawler. I'd have to be a right bastard not to want to use what I've been given to lift up the people who matter to me. He reached across the table and took her hand in his. It was cold and rough, like new leather. You'd have been so proud of the woman you've become. Elias breathed. I... thank you. She tried to hold his gaze, but there was something sharp and predatory about it that unsettled her. Again, she found herself wanting to tell him about Haytham, but something low and instinctive in her belly held her back. If he knew that the brawler was back, why wouldn't he just say so? She settled her gaze on the bridge of his once broken nose. I try to live every day like he's watching. Maybe he is. Her eyes flicked sharply up to his... Elias bobbed his head toward the ceiling. Up there. She was spared a reply by the return of the serving maid. Amatha quickly unknit her hand from his and busied herself stacking dishes to help the girl carry them out. 
She didn't say anything, but Am couldn't help but notice a little extra acid in her gaze after she caught a glimpse of Elias holding the fiddler's hand across the table. It had been nearly two hours since he'd wound his way back to the dram house, and high on his perch at the crook between two rooftops, the nighttime chill had sunk its icy fingers into the thief. His bones ached, his fingers were numb, and he alternated between blowing blasts of hot breath into his cupped hands and wedging them tight under his armpits. When his quarry at last staggered out, they were both much the drunker, his lordship especially so, and they leaned on each other for support as they traversed that cobblestone gauntlet to his carriage. Lee sat bolt upright in his hiding place, the cold forgotten. He peered down at the street just long enough to confirm that it was them, and as the driver leapt nimbly down from his seat and opened the door for Lord Whiterose and his beautiful companion, Lee scrambled over the peak of the roof and was off running as though lives depended on him, which, in a way, they did. He didn't bother tracing the route they were sure to take back to the Eidolon. The thief knew the edge like the lines on his palm, and he cut a path right over the peaks and ridges of the city's rooftops. He felt better as he outran the cold, his breath streaming behind him in foggy wisps. He was light on his feet, and he'd made it this far riding high on the devil's luck. He could beat them to the inn. He knew he could. He wagered that Haytham and the rest had found their new hiding place with a direct line of sight to the Eidolon, or that at the very least they'd stationed one or two of the Sellsword's men near enough to run word back to the others. During his long two hours on the rooftop, he'd only slipped away once to nick a fresh pair of torches from a nearby shop. The signal would be the same, he'd decided. Stand on the Eidolon's roof and wave his two torches over his head to let them know that their quarry was coming. He bounded past Paul's place, tucked away on its narrow Copper District Street. He knew better than to actually cross over the mismatched house. The last time he'd tried, his foot had gone straight through the termite-eaten shingles and showered splinters on the old woman asleep in her bed. He was quite sure he'd never, ever hear the end of that one. Instead, he scampered along the hard ridge of the rooftop across the street, paper-thin wood shingles cracking underfoot as he lurched toward the chasm between this building and the next. Lee was so intent on the jump that he didn't notice the two figures sprawled on the roof until one of them looked right at him and hissed, Lee! It was all he could do not to yelp. He skidded to a stop, ripped two shingles off with his boot heels, and nearly followed them over the edge before a strong hand closed around his shirt sleeve and stopped him short. The thief steadied himself, his feet scraping along the edge of the rain gutter, and he looked up into the moonlit face of the boy who'd saved him. At fourteen, Vig was the oldest boy who still kept a cot at Paul's place. He was a head shorter than Lee, but built like an ox, with short, powerful arms and a dark, resting scowl. Vig, what the hell are you doing? Lee snapped, his heart hammering in his throat. It's after midnight. What do you mean? The stocky boy grunted. They didn't tell you. Shh, the other boy hissed urgently from the roof's peak. Lee didn't remember his name. He was ten or eleven, one of the dozen or so who swelled the ranks of boys under the old woman's care during the bitter winter, even when there weren't any beds and there was hardly enough food for the boys who lived there all year, he'd never seen her turn anyone away. Lee and Vig wriggled up the steep pitch of the roof and huddled next to him. I sent John and Alwyn looking for you, Vig told the thief in undertone. I didn't know what else to do. Before he could ask why, they reached the roof's apex and he saw. 
There were two hulking brutes flanking the door to the mismatched house, hefting rust-spotted swords. Firelight streamed from the windows of the lower level, casting long orange rectangles on the dirty cobbles outside. For a brief moment, a huge, dark shape moved in front of the window, and Lee saw his silhouette. Bulbous, bald head above a mountain of flesh. They've got Paul, the younger boy whispered. His stomach roiled. If he'd had anything in his stomach but the nip of whiskey he drank hours ago before he took up his position in the belfry, he'd have been sick right there. His vision swam, and he held on to the ridge of the roof for dear life as he heard himself say, Who else is in there? Most of the boys, muttered Vig. Maybe half. Me, Willie, he bobbed his head to the younger boy. Alwyn and John. We knocked one of them down the stairs as he was coming up. Got out with five or six of the younger boys. I told them to head towards the keep, not to come back without grey cloaks. Lee grit his teeth. It was about as likely that they'd convince a keeper to follow them back to Paul's as it was that Lee could persuade Cirrus to take out the jackdaw with a lightning bolt. You did good, he said, mind racing as he ran through what he had in his pockets. We think they blocked the door, Vig added, pointing to the upstairs window. They were dark, but Lee made out a couple of pale shapes that might have been faces peeking through the warped glass. Why are they here? The younger boy, Willie, murmured in a frightened voice. I don't know, Lee lied. He had the two unspent torches, the fire steel, his knife, his harness with the serrated hook, the belt of picks around his calf, and his wits. And those were frayed from lack of sleep already. He thought about Haytham and the sellswords. They'd have made short work of Killam and his thugs, but they were a mile away and hiding. At this moment, he didn't give half a damn for the brawler's vengeance, but he wasn't willing to leave Paul to the mercies of the jackdaw one minute longer than he had to. Listen to me. He rolled over on his back and slid a foot down the slope of the roof, staring up into the starry sky and swallowing against the taste of bile on the back of his tongue. You need to get those boys out of here. How? Those windows don't open, and they'll hear us if we try to break the glass. His fingertips curled under one of the wooden shingles. He snapped it off and crumbled it between his fingertips. Go through the roof. They won't see you if you stay on the alley side. He loosened the harness around his legs and passed it to Vig. Lower that down into the hole and, and pull them out. Tell them to stay quiet and rally at the stone bridge. What are you going to do? He told them. Both boys gaped at him. They'll kill you. Lee shook his head. I'll be fine. Somebody needs to distract them and get Paul. He was done cowering, done running, done waiting for the void to catch up to him. It was perhaps the thing he admired most about Haytham. When the brawler ran, it was only to make it faster to where the fighting was the thickest. It was high time to run toward something. He bared his teeth and clasped both boys' forearms in turn. Good luck. Don't get killed. Name survive, whispered Vig as Lee slipped over the edge of the roof and slid down the drainpipe. He landed lightly on a soft mat of rotted hay and crept to the side of the alley. The two brutes were framed between the dark wooden walls. His heart hammered. Even with his newfound resolve, that churning feeling in his gut didn't subside even as he stepped out onto the moonlit street. I hear he's looking for me. The brutes gaped. Lee gnawed on his cheek and threw up a quick wordless prayer to a god he wasn't sure he still believed in, asking that just this once, and not for his sake, but for Paul's, would he mind please just tossing out a quick lightning bolt for good measure?
thank you guys so much for listening. It truly is a privilege to be able to share this story with you. As always, it is a huge favor if you leave a like or a comment on the video. And if you're enjoying the story so far, you can show your support by sharing it with a friend. All right, that is enough from me. Thank you for being here and I will catch you next week.